Welcome to the Littler Labor and Employment Podcast, conversations about employment and labor law issues that impact the workplace. I'm Dawn Maxwell with Littler Mendelssohn. We're here talking to Kevin O'Neill, Senior Director of Littler Learning Group and Principal at Littler Mendelssohn. Welcome, Kevin. Hi, Dawn. Thanks for having me in. Kevin, question for you. As the year draws to an end, a lot of clients are making sure that they've addressed their annual or biannual training needs. What should be foremost on their minds? Well, I guess a couple of things. You know, first of all, from the big picture, our clients want to be looking at their overall compliance initiatives from a training point of view. Are they doing training on what's really needed? I would say from what we've been covering in the last year or two, the more popular training topics are going to be managing medical conditions, a kind of managing within the law blend, which a lot of folks are doing these days where they bring some of their hot topics or hot areas of need together in a condensed program investigations, training, wage hour. These are just some of the topics. Social media comes up a lot right now. Are you doing some updated training on the do's and don'ts of how social media is used, how it's misused, how it shows up, how we uh, how we grab uh, captures of it and, and use them in ways we shouldn't in the workplace, things like that, even positive employee relations. There's also a lot of emphasis these days on blending the above-mentioned topics into kind of a leadership approach where you're merging leadership savvy, leadership awareness with a compliance foundation. So you're mixing a kind of leadership message with the compliance message. All of that said, though, probably still the most far and away important thing that we need to be paying attention to is, are we on top of our compliance training requirements regarding the old standby, which is harassment prevention training? Kevin, can you give us a picture of how employers are and have been approaching harassment prevention training efforts? Sure, happy to. Uh, It's it's been an interesting period where in California, for example, where I'm situated, I work out of the San Francisco office. Of course, we've been dealing with the California harassment training mandate for about 12 years now. It started in 2005. And so we've seen a lot of attempts, a lot of approaches taking place regarding how that training gets rolled out, Uh, just, you know, quickly back up to talk about it. It's a requirement that every two years, if you're an employer with 50 or more employees, your California-based supervisory employees have to undergo training related to harassment, workplace harassment, sexual harassment, retaliation, discrimination for at least two hours every two years. Uh, So a lot of our clients at least started doing that in 2005 and stuck with this kind of odd year rollout. So every two years, every odd year, 2005, 7, 9, 11, 13, 15, and now 17, they've been making sure that they're keeping on track with their compliance training efforts. Uh, That's become really, really important. How they've done that since there have now been so many rollout attempts uh, over the course of those kinds of years has varied a lot, but it's still going strong, I I would say, in in a lot of areas. Uh, The in-person training, which was what we typically focus on through the learning group at Littler, where we provide training and it's presented by our attorneys through the various Littler offices, is still very popular for a a lot of reasons, I think, foremost among which is it gives individuals in the room a chance to really talk meaningfully about some of the issues that they may have, to work interactively and uh, spontaneously and with questions and networking off of each other about how to work best within their cultural framework, things like that. 
but technology has definitely taken hold. So there's a lot of successful approaches with online training, with combining kind of a blended solution to training efforts, which also works in compliance with this California training, training mandate, which requires levels of interactivity in the training. So you can combine approaches using video, multimedia, online modules, tracking, et cetera, with even uh, a blend of live training. So you're getting maybe the best of both worlds. So we're seeing clients work around with different training assets and different training approaches, so to speak, and, uh, and having a lot of success with that. The challenge on the training front, of course, is to make sure your training remains engaging uh, ahead of the curve, so to speak, that you're not just rolling out the same message every other year. And I'm talking from this perspective of California. Now, of course, any organization that is not located in California or doesn't do any or much business in California still should be taking heed of the California requirements because it sort of has created a standard. There are a couple of other states that require harassment prevention training to some degree. Those are Connecticut and Maine, for example. New Jersey has a, a state Supreme Court decision that that all but you know, mandates it, uh, but it, it just sets a threshold of requirement, doesn't set up any standards about it. All of that said, uh, there's a pretty solid standard in place of what's going to be the best focus on liability prevention, and that's to keep uh, keep on top of the the requirements that are laid out through the California Training Initiative, uh, and what we're seeing is folks are doing a lot of good things to do that. They're they're bringing in live, they're bringing interactives, they're bringing in hypotheticals, case studies, multimedia approaches, video approaches, role play approaches, some really interesting stuff, which is what we encourage all of our clients to be doing, or we try to partner with them to do. Those are interesting insights on the different approaches. It leads me to ask the question of what's on the horizon then in terms of, of what's required to be included in harassment prevention training. Can you give us a sense of that? Yeah, to do that, I probably would best draw on the EEOC task report that came out in June of 2016, uh, which uh, was co-authored by the current commissioner of the EEOC, Victoria Lipnick. And it was pretty interesting because if, if you read it on, it on its face, it suggested that they were saying they were questioning whether uh, harassment prevention training is is really uh, accomplishing what they'd like it to accomplish. But as you read into it, it was interesting how they suggested certain things that they have culled from the data that will make your harassment prevention training really effective. And we've kind of used that as setting a standard for how we should begin to roll out and how our clients should begin looking out, rolling out new messaging in their harassment training. So in a sense, it, it, it suggests different ways to uh, set forth content in your harassment training that's new and different and I think pretty engaging, and also how you can apply some of the more innovative approaches, including multimedia, including online, including live interactive stuff in, into your training efforts. So what they suggested in that is harassment prevention training is still very effective if you're underscoring certain crucial components. I'm um, maybe a little biased in that I do a lot of live training and the emphasis in, in their, their looking at the success ratio of training was that live in-person training seems to deliver the best message. But really the, the components they talked about in effective compliance training could apply across the board. And those, if I recall correctly, are threefold. The first of which is be thinking about the concept of uh, situational awareness. Situational awareness is when you're looking at the different situation posed or presented by uh, your workplace or a given department in your workplace? Is it an homogenous workforce? Is it an incredibly diverse workforce? Is it, uh, is it a remote workforce? Factors like that 
which when you look at should help dictate to you and or help you calibrate uh, the approach that you want to be taking to that training, you know, how much you should put the pedal to the metal, so to speak. Certain environments in and of themselves are basically suggesting they have a higher risk pertinent to them, and therefore we should be paying higher levels of attention to certain factors about those workplaces. So one is just calibrate your approach to the environment that you're conducting the training on. Just to, don't just do the same old, same old for every department and every location you have, but really look at the context of where you're delivering the training and what they need to most effectively receive the message and to most effectively hit home for any issues that they're confronting. So situational awareness, or what I like to call just risk awareness, because in a sense, I believe harassment prevention is really just risk prevention, risk management in a, in a sense. The second is then uh, looking at this concept of what they call bystander training. And bystander training is often associated with violence prevention training, but they're suggesting that you use it more. And it's, frankly, it's something we've done through the Little Learning Group content for years now of, of putting uh, the managers, particularly in the shoes of somebody who's actually uh, witnessing or observing a situation that is percolating into a potential harassment allegation and asking them, what would you do if this happened, if this unfolded uh, in, in your presence? What would you say? How would you say it? When would you say it? Uh, different factors. There's a lot of nuanced factors that come into play very quickly for managers who, if they're not thinking or haven't kind of walked through it a couple of times in, in the safe space of a training environment may not know what to do and therefore won't do anything. And as we all know, one of the most crucial things you can do is make sure your managers know how to respond effectively in the moment of these kinds of, uh, of misconduct spirals uh, beginning to uh, go out of control. So bystander training and how you apply it, it can be a very effective and innovative approach. There's lots of room for hypotheticals, role plays, case studies, live questioning, a lot of Q&A comes out of it. And it's, it's what I call profound simplicity in that you'll see that a lot of managers, once they realize there's they're not necessarily any magic words that you have to apply to a situation, the most important thing is to show up and say or do something, even if it's a little light touch of something initially, which is, hey, gang, you know, let's settle down. Hey, gang, let's tone that down. Little boundary setting moments uh, can be very dramatically effective in that bystander moment. As you see something, what should you do about it? Uh, so that's that's kind of given a lot of room for some creative approaches to training. And it's something I think anybody putting training content together should be thinking of these days from a harassment prevention standpoint, right? And the third is what they're calling civility training. In the task report, they talked about civility training as focusing what I like about it is they suggested it, it focuses much less, if it, in fact, not at all on what you shouldn't do, but more on what you should do, right? Uh, a lot of harassment training is it's easy to focus on. Here's what people can do wrong. Here's the bad conduct. But what civility training is saying, draw a picture of what should be the model of effective employee engagement and effective management response. And that also then covers uh, anti-bullying training, which has become a hot topic in the last couple of years, particularly, especially in California, where it was woven into the California mandatory training requirement two years ago. Uh, it is now part and parcel of any training that we're doing. And it covers, it is in fact covered by this concept of civility training. So when I look at those three different standards that have come out of the EEOC's mouth, so to speak, I see a lot of room for a lot of interesting revamping of content and delivery approaches and how we're approaching the harassment prevention training message.
That leads me to ask then about 4Q. As we approach the fourth quarter of 2017, what should we be paying attention to regarding harassment prevention training efforts? Well, that's a good question because for for some of uh, the organizations out there that are on this every other year calendar year, you're looking at the last three months of an opportunity to make sure that you're getting in the training that's needed to be gotten in. Uh, by the end of the year. So you should be looking to obviously make sure that you're on track with your compliance efforts and making sure you're getting your folks trained if you've been doing training every other year in the odd years. Otherwise, you should be tracking it according to whatever um, calendaring approach that you're using, a rolling year or calendar year approach, and also making sure that any supervisors who have been brought in recently, under California law, for example, the focus is if you are a new supervisor, either brought in laterally or you're promoted into supervisorial rank, you need to receive this training within six months of that event. Uh, so make sure you're, you're doing that mini tracking. And once those supervisors are brought in, then they're on a rolling calendar year or a biannual calendar year training approach as well. So just you know, from a tracking perspective, make sure you are on track, but also start thinking ahead in terms of any new developments and also just look for recent developments. The, the biggest recent development that I see is an uptick in the uh, focus on uh, anti-bullying or what we call in California abusive conduct training. That was legislated into a requirement to be included in, in the training in 2015. And basically what we see there is a, a, an uptick in the, the emphasis and examples and practical application that now has to be included in harassment, discrimination, retaliation prevention training to make sure you're giving uh, some focus to this concept of abusive conduct and what it means. It doesn't create an actionable claim, but it creates a requirement under the training mandatory requirement that you do include it as content there. And it's really interesting stuff, quite frankly, because it, it's, it, to me, when you're focusing on that, you're saying, let's catch this stuff in the gray area. It's going to be very effective. If, if we can apply our prevention standards and our response methods to conduct that's beginning to percolate in that area where it's not necessarily stepping over into violating somebody's protected status or touching on protected category offensiveness in the workplace, but it's just generally unpleasant, right? And it's beginning to get pretty severe and serious. It's bullying. It's that kind of corrosive, aggressive dynamic that sometimes has remained unchecked. If you let that remain unchecked, obviously it's, it's likely to morph into something that could be considered harassment or somebody could attach it to a pattern they say is based on their membership in a protected category. But if you catch it in the early stage, it can be a very naturally turned around situation. It's much easier to tell somebody when they've just begun to engage in hijinks or rough and tumble tactics in the workplace that you need them to refocus, that they're in a professional setting, that they need to rein it in or tone it down or push the reset button or any kind of natural boundary set you can lay out is going to be very effective in that zone. So be thinking about those kind of approaches to that first level of misconduct, the anti-bullying or abusive conduct approach. That's really becoming kind of a standard inclusion in training, although it's required in California, it's I think being received well nationally because a lot of organizations really struggle with how to deal with that first level indication of misconduct. 
Then secondly, look at what's coming. And I know that one, one thing coming in California, for example, is an amendment has been signed into law that's going to affect in January of 2018, that's gonna require that when you do conduct supervisorial mandatory harassment training, you now have to include practical content and examples based on gender identity, gender expression, and sexual orientation. So to the extent your pre-existing content did not include focus on those areas, it now must do so, or you're in danger of being non-compliant. And again, it's a California standard, but it's if you're using any application of that uh, across the country to build your own program, it's generally considered recommended that you are thinking about how close can we come to complying with this high level standard of California law. If you're doing that, you're now gonna be thinking about, are we including examples related to this kind of content, gender identity, gender expression, and sexual orientation. And along with all of that, just keep your eye on the prize as things go along, we're, we're looking at a new era uh, and we're looking at a new commissioner of the EEOC and seeing what might be expected there. We're always looking at different ingredients coming out from uh, from the NLRB in terms of what they may say is protected speech and how that uh, accumulates and how we respond to it. Social media is a, a major uh, area of, of opportunity, shall we say, for harassment to take hold and and much to many people's surprise, be considered work-related or not, depending on how you're looking at it in the context of those uh, of social media content. But I would say pay particular attention to social media and electronic activity for the reasons that they could be considered protected speech or not, but also just because of the volatile nature of that kind of content. That if you if you do pronounce something in a social media or an electronic email kind of utterance, uh, a, they say a picture is worth a thousand words and, and an electronic, uh, electronic speech is probably worth 10,000 words. And if you've ever seen it play out later on as a piece of evidence, if somebody says something that could be considered the equivalent of harassment level language in an email, and that is ever used to suggest a pattern of harassment in the workplace later on in a trial kind of setting. Typically, that email is stretched out to huge proportions, shown up on a huge screen. And even though it may have been sent one time, it is uh, suggested that it is uh, is indicative of a typical pattern of behavior from the sender. And if you play it or orchestrate it out of context, it can look even more uh, more incriminating than you ever would have intended in the first place. Kevin, you talked a lot about supervisors. Uh, curious, what about the obligations for training of non-supervisors? I'm glad you asked that. I, I tend to focus on supervisors because under some of the training requirements out there that are mandated, they tend to be those who are focused upon and required to undergo the training. And that certainly is true where I am in California. However, I would say that to really ensure the most uh, responsive, compliant, respect-based workplace, uh, the most uh, risk-free workplace, you do want to be thinking about what can we do with this message to deliver it effectively to our non-supervisors? Because frankly, they're as much part of the issue as supervisors would be. Supervisors can be obviously the quote wrongdoer, but they also run the risk of being the, the person who doesn't quite stop it, prevent it, respond effectively. So they do occupy this dual role. But obviously, uh, non-supervisors can also be the wrongdoer and often are and they need to be aware of a couple of things, right? They need to be aware of what, obviously what standards are in fact they should be avoiding, what kind of conduct 
should they refrain from engaging on? But again, with the civility standard, what is most effective? What's the kind of behavior we want them to model? And then what's the kind of environment we want them to feel supported in? And I, I, I often think of training non-supervisors with a thought of a message of, hey, we've got your back, right? The message being, yeah, the, here, here are the standards we need you to abide by, things we need you not to do, and the model of correct behavior. And by the way, if anybody ever steps over a boundary you're uncomfortable with, here's the system by which you can proffer a complaint. Here's our reporting procedure. Here's our, in, in, this, in essence, you're saying, we promote a speak up culture. We want you to be able, be able to speak up, feel free to speak up, and know how to speak up when you have to express a concern about treatment you're not comfortable with, either individually or that you're observing in the workplace. And the truth really seems to be that if you're creating that kind of a message, you're actually creating an environment where people may speak up via a, a traditional reporting mechanism less frequently because it, it sort of eases the ability when I know, hey, at the end of the day, this organization has my back and they know that if I have a concern, uh, I'm going to have a place to bring it and it's going to be addressed professionally and correctly. It gives me a little bit more a free reign impetus and in a sense, uh, courage maybe, if that applies, to be able to face the issue on my own initially. And that is something that we would encourage. Obviously, a lot of our policies are written to do that. We encourage, if you feel offended by another individual in the workplace, we encourage you to speak to them and let them know, i.e., can you work this out before it gets to the level of harassment? And if you have a closed down mechanism, a, a mechanism that is uh, as perceived as not effective or that people don't trust from a reporting procedure standpoint, you're going to have a much more shutdown ability for folks to try to work stuff out. They're just not going to trust it. They're not going to take matters into their own hands. Whereas they perceive that the organization really does have a seamless, trustworthy mechanism of how they respond to these things, you're going to have individuals from a, a non-supervisory standpoint feel a lot more uh, emboldened to work things out, to express things, to talk things out amongst themselves effectively and respectfully. And that's what you can encourage in non-supervisory training, all of the above, and giving them the message of, hey, we've got your back at the end of the day. We're not just here telling you what not to do. We're telling you what the right model of correct behavior is. And oh, by the way, how good we are responding to issues if they ever present themselves to us. So yes, you should be including non-supervisor training in your training initiatives. Obviously, you're not subject to the same level, the same standards, the same length of time for California. Again, it's a two-hour minimum threshold of training, and a lot of folks would not bring that, that to their employee-level training. You could, uh, but the, when you take away some of the key components of supervisor training that you probably wouldn't run by non-supervisors, i.e. liability issues, liability examples, things like that, manager responsibilities, even how to respond. You want response dynamics understood by your employees, but you don't want to make them feel as responsible as your managers uh, to responding from the management standpoint and pivoting over to the reporting procedure. You want them aware of and know how to use the reporting procedure, but generally employees are not being asked to uh, play a part in being uh, a conduit within the reporting procedure. So, you know, to, to wrap that up, it's it's uh, highly encouraged and recommended that you do include uh, employee training, obviously, because of the numbers, the practicality of it suggests you have to get pretty darn creative in how you do it. And that's where some of the stuff I talked about at the top of this 
podcast would come into play. How creative you can be, how innovative can you be, how can you blend the message, how can you blend the delivery approach so that you can bring in as widespread a population as possible. And that's where you want to be thinking of really layered approaches. What, what message do I want to give to leadership? Again, in the EEOC task report of 2016, they talked about one of the most important things you can do is make sure the message is received at the top and modeled at the top about your commitment to things like harassment prevention training and modeling a respect-based and a civil workplace. So are you bringing that message to the top in the right way? Are you then bringing it to management in the right way and in the compliant way? And along those same lines, are you then bringing the calibrated message to the employees? And are you thinking of things like situational awareness and bystander or intervention response approaches when you're bringing that training uh, to fruition? Kevin, thank you for your time and this terrific information. You've given us many things to think about as our clients and employers move into 2018 and prepare for their steps in relation to harassment prevention training. Thank you, Dawn. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.